So we're in Ecclesiastes today. I hope you have your Bibles with you. It's very helpful to have your Bibles open. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. And this is the the second sermon in a series of sermons from Ecclesiastes. And let me just give you a little bit of background for Ecclesiastes before we get going. Um, It seems clear to me that the author of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon. He refers to himself quite often in the book as the teacher, um, which is a title, or you could also call it the preacher. Ecclesiastes is the Latin word for the preacher. That's where we get the title of the book. Um, What is it about? Ecclesiastes is sort of like an apologetics, a defense of the Christian faith, but in a way that we're not used to the Christian faith being defended. It takes a look at life as if there was no God in many respects. So it says, what would life be like if all there is is what we can see under the sun? It's sort of like a scientific approach. If there is no God but only what you can see and touch and hear is what is reality, what would life be like? And it keeps on going through different situations in life, exploring different pursuits, different goals that people have, and saying, at the end of the day, if all that there is is what we can see, hear, and touch, what is the point of, of all this life that we're living? And he says that well, we can choose futility or we can choose to live for eternity. And, of course, not the entire book sounds like that because there's moments of hope, there's moments that point to God as well. And, of course, we have to remember that Ecclesiastes is God's Word. He's showing us things about ourselves. Uh, And so what we want to do as we study this book together is ask for God's Holy Spirit to be teaching us and guiding us and counseling us, helping us to use these questions and these thoughts to sort of examine our own hearts and our own lives. Have, Have we been taking some of our effort and time that God has given us to pursue things that are worthwhile, or are we pursuing things that at the end of the day will just be futile, a vanity, and a chasing of the wind? The genre of this book is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature was written mostly for people who'd be the leaders of Israel. Um, People who were the future leaders, they would study these writings, maybe future kings and, and wisdom people, and they would take time to learn so that they could lead well. Uh, That is the genre that we're taking from. And if you were here uh, two weeks ago when I started this one, there was an action step, um, something that I wanted for people to do. And I wonder if anyone did this and report back to me. I want to hear how it went for you. Uh, Here was the the takeaway. We said, worldly accomplishments and pleasures are futile, like chasing the wind. And so here's the thing that we were to do, is to evaluate your priorities, Are you chasing the wind, or are you living for eternity? And um, hopefully you've had a chance to examine that question. So one more thing I want to point out is that there's a series of questions that get asked throughout these messages, and we don't have time to sort of stop the message um, and, and talk with one another and say, how are you doing with this? What does this question mean for you in your own life? I wish that there was time for that. But what I'm hoping you'll do is write them down or highlight them, And then you can take them back this week, and you can pray through these things. Uh, Maybe if you've got a small group you're a part of, you can talk through these questions together. And hopefully we can take some chances, some opportunities to apply what we're learning and see how does this need to impact our lives. Okay, I hope you found Ecclesiastes in your Bible. We are on chapters 3 and 4. And I want to start off with, with a question, or with a story actually. It's a story about Elise. Elise is my three year old. She turned three last Sunday, February the 10th. Happy birthday, Elise. Very happy little girl. Um, And sometimes her and I go to the Home Depot. 
Anyone here ever been shopping at Home Depot before? You might have noticed that they have some special shopping carts for toddlers. And what it is, is that they get their own little seat with a steering wheel. And so we'll put Elise in the shopping cart. I put her there. She's got the steering wheel. And I'll say, quick, Elise, turn to the left. And she'll turn to the left, and I'll turn the cart with her. I'll say, turn to the right, and she'll turn it. Actually, who's kidding who? She doesn't know left or right yet. But we'll say, turn the wheel, and we'll sort of make the cart go all sorts of which ways down the aisle. And you know what? Uh, She thinks she's in control, doesn't she? Do you ever think that about your life? I've been turning the wheel this way. I've been turning the wheel that way, but we're not really going the way I think I should be. Has life ever taken a turn on you where you thought you'd made a decision, but you suddenly go scattering off in the opposite direction? That's a little bit about what we're getting into today. Ecclesiastes 3 starts off with a poem. And as I read this poem, ask yourself the question, who is controlling that decision? So the poem starts off with sort of a thesis statement, and then it gets into a series of questions. There is an occasion for everything, and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Let's quickly just explain some of these phrases here. We won't get to all of them. Uh, He starts off saying there's a time to live and a time to die. Uh, These times, of course, belong to God. God is the one who makes these decisions. And um, so a time to be born and a time to die belongs to God. But, you know, really, so does everything else in between. All the times belong to God. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. You know this is true because if you went to plant your garden outside today, you know it's not the right time to do that. Um, There is a season in life that planting makes a lot more sense. Um, Moving along, time to kill and a time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build. Um, uh, The commentaries that I read say that this probably has to do with a military strategy. Remember who this is written to, people who would be leading a nation. They have to do with establishing or destroying. Um, you could think about that for if an army had to go to war, there's a time to kill, but there's also a time to heal. heal. You could also imply this to construction. Um, buildings are built for a purpose, but time passes, and over time, it's time for that building to come back down. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Uh, we know straight away that this is true. And if you do the joyful dancing where the sad mourning should be, um, things can seem out of sorts. Or if you're going through a time of sadness and someone else is doing a a dance on top of it, it can seem really quite offensive. Um, One of the the phrases in this poem that get people really scratching their heads, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. (laughs) What is being talked about here? There's actually a few different ways that this gets interpreted in the commentaries, not a universal agreement, that the interpretation that I think makes the most sense um, has to do with war strategy again. Sometimes it makes sense for an army when they're moving forward um, to, to actually put a bunch of stones on a field so that it can't be used to grow crops anymore. And other times, of course, 
you want for that field to produce because you've claimed the land, so you want to now be the rock pickers. Some of you grew up on farms. You know what it's like to go through your fields and pick up the rocks so that the, the crops can grow. So I'm going to stop right there going line by line through the poem because I want to focus on what's really the point of this poem. What, what is the author trying to get at? Is it so that we can be aware of the times that we're in, to discern what season of life that we're in, and in so recognize the rhythm of life and in, understand that we should work with God's created order, knowing what the time and the season, rather than to work against it? Yes, I think that's a fair lesson from the poem. We should do that. But I don't think that understanding times with discernment is the main reason why we find this poem here. I think that the main point is likely this. God is in control. God is overall. God is God and we are not. There, there are so many things in our life that are going to happen uh, whether we like it or not. Um, maybe you get sick and there was nothing that you could have done to avoid it. It happens. Uh, wars come up. You didn't choose to be in the war, but you get drafted. What can you do? Um, we have timelines. We have goals. There's things that we're working towards, but sometimes it just shifts on us. It doesn't go exactly how we'd hoped or how we'd planned. And how then should we respond? If you look at that poem, you can see that there's sort of a series of one canceling the other out. Uh, a time to be born and a time to die. Canceled out. Time to plant, a time to uproot. One cancels the other. And so in a sense, you might draw the conclusion to say that the big result of everything is nothing. Canceled out. Futility. All of our efforts will one day be canceled out, just like chasing after the wind. Is that the point? Is everything really that futile? If so, maybe we would just want to quit. Um, dissolve into a fatalism. It doesn't matter what I do because God's in charge anyways and His will will be done. So just be lazy in work. Lazy in faith, lazy in commitments. What does it matter? You can't control time anyways. Uh, you could sum up that question like this. If God's in control of everything, well, what is my responsibility? Or you could maybe pose the question this way. If God is in control, does it really matter what I do? What am I working so hard for? Well, let's see what the teacher says about this, moving on in verses 9 through 15. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given people to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. And I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that God, that all God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of Him. Whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, already is. God repeats what has passed. If God is in control, what is my responsibility? Well, first and foremost, what I think we need to see here is that we should stand in awe of God. We should step back and stand in awe of an awesome God who is overall. And we're not particularly good at this as a culture. We don't normally stand still. Uh, we're really not that good at Sabbath. The idea of stopping our work so that we have a time and a space to worship God and just focus on Him and rest inside of His goodness. 
We end up filling our days from dawn till dusk with tasks. We're busy people. Sometimes we'll even find our worth and our value. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, good job. But try this out this week. Start each day out with this phrase, right from Ecclesiastes. God works so that people will be in awe of him. As you go through your day, look for God's work. Think about how is this world being sustained? Who's, who's in charge? And when you take, back a, take a step back to see what God is accomplishing, stand in awe. Appreciate his work. Uh, praise him for his control. You, you could put your head down on the pillow at night and say, where was God at work today? What, what did I see him doing? And take a moment to praise him for his goodness. Uh, the second thing that we can do here is to enjoy life. God is in control. He is overall. He has created us to live on this earth in view of his good work and carrying forward with our responsibilities and commitments. So let us rejoice and enjoy this good life that God has given to us. We can trust him. Maybe nothing is working out how you thought that it would. Maybe it's becoming painfully obvious that you have far less control than you thought. Nonetheless, you can and should enjoy this life that God has given. Why? Why? God is not surprised, alarmed, or anxious. Our situations don't catch him off guard. He is God and he's in control and we can trust him that he is working for our good and for his glory. Uh, Philippians 4, 11 to 13 encourages us this way. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any in all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. The next uh, section of Scripture that we're looking at is the remaining bits of chapter 3 and then some of chapter 4. And in this portion here, we're going to get a picture of what happens when people attempt to take back that control from God, when we try to do things our ways and not His ways. Ecclesiastes three sixteen and 17. I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment, And there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. Does anybody here remember the O.J. Simpson trial? I remember the O.J. Simpson trial. He had this sort of a lawyer that made the world question, is this man really getting justice? We thought maybe his lawyer was so good he didn't get the justice he deserved. Well, why should we work well in a wicked world? when justice doesn't always happen, when there's unrighteousness where there should be righteousness. Because even though money can buy you a better defense in the courts of human law, money won't do anything for you in front of the judgment seat of God. Just because you can get away with something here doesn't mean that God is unknowing. No, God is omnipotent. But if we live as if God does not judge us, and, if his, and as if his divine law and order don't matter, how are we different from, from the animals? That's the next question that the, the teacher here is going to take a look at. He, I said to myself, this happens concerning people so that God may test them, and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of people 
And the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of people rises upward and the spirit of animals go downward to the earth? Well, let's deal, let's deal with that last line first because it's a bit troubling. So we're going to read it. We've got to deal with it. Uh, he says, who knows if the spirit of people rises upward? The implied answer here is that nobody knows that uh, because we can't see the afterlife. We, we don't see today what eternity will be unless we have eyes of faith that God helps us to see. But we could expand this to say that no one would know the answer without help from God. Without God's revelation, we wouldn't know that there's anything after this life. However, the New Testament clearly teaches, yes, there is life after death. We don't have to wonder this. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. John fourteen three. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. But are we living our lives as if that wasn't the truth? Does the culture that we live in encourage us to live as if now is the only reality worth living for? The evidence that we are living in a wicked world is this. People live as if they will never have to stand in front of an omnipotent, an all-knowing God. But if we all live this way, in sort of a dog-eat-dog, survival-of-the-fittest mindset, we're all going to be in a world of hurt, because animals only live to survive. We've got to do a lot better than that. We need to live our lives for the glory of God, and to understand and know His love and share that with others. What the teacher was seeing was a culture with each person living for themselves. Where was the sense of community? Where was the kindness? We must not live like we are simply animals doing what it takes to survive. Great. What's next? Verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I admired the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. The teacher here is taking an extreme view of the hopelessness of oppression. And he asks for us to consider the acts of, of oppression. They seem cruel. Futile. Lives are ruined. People are hurt. Where is the comfort for them? So what does the teacher do? Does he offer a wonderful solution? No, he just leaves us in despair. He says it would be better if people hadn't been born. Then he wouldn't have to live to see that despair and that kind of hurt in people. So we ask ourselves, if all there is to life is what we can see under the sun then all of this oppression, corruption, and abuse simply makes life unbearable. Maybe more subtle, though, is the jealous heart. Ecclesiastes 4.4 I saw that all labor and skillful work is due to a man's jealousy of his friend. This, too, is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The teacher here is exposing motives. Why is it that you work to get good grades in your class? Is it so that you will be able to say that your grades are better than your classmates? 
Is there a bit of competitiveness there? Why try to go to a certain university? Is it to gain a certain prestige in the eyes of men? Why do you try to win the promotion over top of your co-workers? Is it to gain some sort of an edge against others? What is it that you spend the bulk of your time working towards? Have you ever stopped to examine heart motives? What am I working so hard for? Have you ever slowed down, retreated from your work for a couple of hours and said, God, search my heart. Help me show why am I putting this work forward? We live and work in a world where there are all sorts of unholy motivations. And how can we work well in this world? How can we as Christians stand up in such a way that will draw people to Christ by the way that we work, by the way that we treat others? Mr. Teacher here gives us a little bit of help in the form of a proverb, verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. So we've got three hand positions here. It's folding the arms, two handfuls with effort, and one handful with rest. The first one is the folded arms. You could try folding your arms. Try folding your arms while you work. Try, try writing an essay with your arms folded, or try driving home like this. Uh, the point's made easily. It's a lazy way through life because you just fold your hands, give up, and say, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, the line there, consumes his own flesh, means this. You've gained nothing. You've got no sustenance to live on now because instead of working, you folded your hands. That's, that's what the fool would do. Two handfuls full of effort. I think of the bodybuilding pose. Those, did you miss it? Those are my muscles. Um, <laughs> but the reason I think of that pose is because the, the bodybuilder with the two hands full of effort is giving his everything I'm at all times to get as much done as possible. It's a 24-7, work as hard as you can, dust till dawn sort of approach to life. And, and why such hard work? Is it the bigger is better mentality? Is it just to earn the next thing, to get to that next level, to fulfill some sort of a dream? You give all of your time and all of your effort and all of your strength. At the end of the day, what's left? What's left for family and for friends and for faith? You've given everything for something that turns out to be fleeting, the impossible dream. That's not how we should work in a, in, in a wicked world, working with every single bit of effort and energy that we have given solely to work. The final picture is the one handful that's working, but there's rest there. There's a contentment there. It's the picture of being responsible to what we're responsible for, but we take a break. It's, it's not all on our shoulders. Uh, here are some supporting scriptures to strengthen the point. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. Proverbs 16, 8. Better a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The teacher's point is that we should be satisfied to live peaceful and good lives with just a handful, with what we need. Think about some of the ramifications. We can do honest work, but we are not workaholics. We are content without having the biggest and the best. We are at peace, even when we're not at the top. Our temptation is to embrace the world as it is, live so that the world accepts you, or own the things that gain the approval of others. That's what we're tempted towards, to, to being just fitting in with what's going on. But ask yourself, who's in control? Who's in control of the seasons? Whose world is this? Should I live for people or for God? What's going to matter at the end of my life? 
Other sermons that I could and should preach would deal with what we should do about the wickedness in the world. For example, uh, we should care for the poor. We should help those in need. We should do everything we can to see God's righteousness come into our land and his rule. These are all true. They're just not what the teacher is showing us in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, so we'll have to save them for another time. Here's a conclusion. God is in charge of the times and the seasons, demonstrated so clearly through the life of Christ. For at the appointed time, Jesus came to this earth. Jesus began his public time of teaching and healing by saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. During Jesus' ministry, a group of leaders tried to have him arrested. No one laid a hand on him, though. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In preparation for the Last Supper, leading up to the night where he'd be arrested, the day before he would be crucified, Jesus declares, My time is near. And Paul shows us in Romans 5, 6, that while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ fulfills every single thing about time. He created time. He is the beginning and the end. He is overall, and he lived his life here on earth at that exact time in history when it was ordained. And so we can stand in awe of God's control of time, and we can surrender our lives to his rule and his control. He is always on time. And maybe for you, today is the day of salvation. Maybe today is the day when you say, God, I'm going to trust you. I've been trying to do this on my own. I want to trust you. If your life is in Jesus Christ, then enjoy this life that has been redeemed for you. You are born again because this Messiah has given his life so that we who were dead in our sins could be made right with God. So fear God and enjoy this life that is made possible for us through Jesus Christ. How should you work in this wicked world? Don't fold your arms, give up, and say, what's going to be will be, Kesara Sarah. Don't be a workaholic, working like today is all, or working like this world is all that there is. No, if God is in control, what is our responsibility? Work at rest, but with one handful. We do what we're responsible for, but we're content with what God has given us. So, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see there's more to Ecclesiastes 4 than we're going to get to. Therefore, I have a small group assignment for you. If you're in a small group, if not, I encourage you to be part of a smaller group. Here's some questions to ask. You can grab the notes and bring the notes to your small group, or just grab your smartphone and take a picture of the screen. Um, It's with Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 13. The question is, does everybody have strong relationships so that they aren't going through this world alone? And then the next one is from Ecclesiastes 4, 14 to 16. The question here is, if Solomon is the foolish king in verse 14, what would have been different if he had paid attention to the warnings? What warnings should we be paying attention to? Um, And I can fill you in more on that later, but for now it's the end of the sermon. So I pray that God has been speaking to your heart, and I, I hope that going forward we can take a look at these questions on our own, and really pray through and think through the the question, am I living my life for what's important? Or am I pursuing things that would be a chasing of the wind? How can I go through my work in such a way that I care for other people, that I live according to God's standards, and that I'm not sucked into the way that our culture goes?